0: You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Looking at as well this morning, all right? Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Now this is... Technically, the second time that I've preached through this passage, uh, the previous time that we've looked at it, I was looking at tongues and how it applied uh, to our country and the circumstances uh, surrounding uh, George Floyd's murder. But there were, there are so many things in this passage, I, w- I won't be able to squeeze it draw, um, but I want to make sure to, to touch on the subjects that are clearly apparent uh, in this uh, text. And so again, I'm retitling this message, Tongues. This is, is technically kind of part B or two of that original message that if I would have preached all of it, you ought to have been here for, for all the services. We'd have been preaching to six o'clock, alright? So uh, we're going to start there. All right? Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. And this is Tongues, but the second part. Speaking in tongues... Is one of the most misunderstood and controversial subjects in the Bible. What is speaking in tongues? Should all believers, including yourself, speak in tongues to evidence your salvation today? Is tongues a legitimate expression of worship or is it just frenzied babble? But more importantly, and this is the question that I... I, we have to answer above all of those, and we'll try our best to get to them today, is what does tongues teach us about the Holy Spirit? Okay, what does tongues teach us about the Holy Spirit? Now remember, in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples are in the city of Jerusalem as Jesus commanded them before His ascension to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would empower uh, the disciples, the apostles, to witness about Jesus to the world. The day of Pentecost arrives. It is a Jewish festival that would have filled the streets of the city of Jerusalem. And while the disciples have gathered, they're sitting in a room. The Holy Spirit suddenly falls on them like a violent rushing wind fills the room and like a flickering flame rests upon one person and then separates and rests on another. And the Holy Spirit empowers them to witness about Jesus. But notice how they do it. And it is miraculous. It is amazing. Let's look what and see what it says in Acts chapter 2 verses 5 through 13 and I'll read the whole passage together. It says, now there were Jews... Staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. They've all gathered into Jerusalem in order to be part of the Pentecost festival. Okay? Now, verse 6: When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one, okay, of the crowd represented, heard them, the disciples, speaking. In his own language. Now, r- real quick, for purposes later, if you underline in your Bibles, underword that word language. Because there's going to be a few differences as we move through the text. So, language. Verse 7. They were astounded, the crowds were, and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And we'll explain the significance of that passage in a moment. How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Language, again, underline that one, language. uh, And then here's the the list of people that had come. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, that's Turkey. uh, Phagiria, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, which is interesting, both Jews and converts or proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them, the disciples, declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Now underline that. It's a different word from the previous two. Okay? They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some, or others, sneered and said they're drunk on new wine. Now, Before we answer the question, what does tongues teach us about the Holy Spirit? We've got some kind of sub-questions we've got to answer in order to understand the theology of tongues. And the first question I want us to ask is, who was involved in the miracle of tongues at Pentecost? And what does that mean for you and I today? Note verse 10 real quick where it says... Uh, From Rome, both Jews and converts. And like I I mentioned, you can also translate that uh, proselytes. Um, Converts were present. No, converts to what? These converts would have been Gentiles, non-Jews, by birth, who had converted to Judaism. And the reason I want to state this is, so please notice, uh, there are are technically Gentiles present at Pentecost, non-Jews, present at Pentecost when this happens. The Jews and converts here, when you look at the whole thing, represent 15 different places from where they had come from all over the known world at that time in the Roman Empire uh, to come and celebrate the festival of Pentecost. But what's interesting is that the apostles then would not have spoken 15 different languages. That's not what's happening. And what's important is that we notice this. The word language, the first two instances of the word language, is the Greek word dialectos. It is quite literally where we get our word dialect. And it is the language of a country or region. And the way I explained this to you two or three weeks ago when we talked about it, is here's what would have been happening. Is that these Galileans would not have just spoke English... If they were in Demarest, Georgia, they would have spoke Southern English. Everybody get what I'm saying? They'd have said, y'all. And if they were up north, they'd say, you guys, right? And I guess if they were in England, they'd have invited you for tea and shared the gospel with you, right? So it's, it's interesting that there's not just 15 different languages, but there's technically 15 different dialects. I want you to see how, how much God condescends to put his magnificent acts on the mouths of men so that people can hear the gospel in their own words. Isn't that not magnificent? Now, what's so significant about the Galileans? The apostles were from the region of Galilee. Now, Jews from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like that upper class, uh, very well-educated area, right? Right? And Galilee is like this backwoods area. And so Jews from Jerusalem considered Jews from Galilee to be backward, ignorant peasants. These are the, what I say, the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, the fools. And yet what is absolutely fascinating, and this is why they sneer and, and mock and joke, is in a moment, in a moment, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, empowers them to speak most of the dialects throughout the known world with noticeable excellence. I mean, do you see what's happening? The crowds are passing by. They hear this sound and then they start to kind of like focus in. And they go, they're speaking exactly how we talk back home. And it arrested their attention. They were caught. What, do you, what does this mean? And the, and the Jews in Jerusalem are looking at them going, and it's these guys that are doing it. They knew clearly there, was, there had to be some other explanation than that while the 50 days they were with Jesus, they were learning languages. You know what I mean? It had to be something else. And so they're going to look for a, a natural, rational explanation, and it's horrific. We'll talk about it more in a minute. So... Who was involved in the miracle of tongues at Pentecost? Well, frankly, it seems that every believer present was involved. Okay? Every disciple, every apostle spoke in tongues that day. So, should we infer, since every believer uh, spoke in tongues, that we should speak in tongues as evidence of our sincere faith in Christ today? And here's where this is something so important, and to teach you to read your Bibles better. It's context, context, context. Don't stop reading here in the book of Acts and draw your whole theology. Look at the whole. I want to show you that there is some, some connection between salvation and speaking in tongues. But they actually only occupy three instances in the entire book of Acts. And so just write these references down. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole story. These are stories you need to go back and read. But please go behind me and fact check me, okay? But in Acts Acts 8.17, the deacon or the assistant apostle, right, assistant to the apostles went to Samaria, this, na- this man named Philip, went to Samaria and evangelized Samaria. Now if you don't know anything about Samaria, Samaritans are like uh, what you would say is half-breeds. They're half-Jewish and half-something else. They're not considered fully Jewish. So the gospel here is, co- uh, is crossing out of Jewish territory into this kind of halfway territory. So Philip goes to Samaria, he evangelizes, and people accept the word. They receive the gospel. Now what's interesting is that they don't immediately receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's odd. Because we as Baptists, good Baptists, we affirm, in order to be a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit. So why is there these separate instances, this distinct timing? So after Philip evangelizes... They accept the word and the word gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem. They send a delegation of Peter and John and they come and place their hands on the Samaritan believers. They receive the Holy Spirit and some as believe, some commentators believe as evidence of that. How do we know that they received the Holy Spirit? They may have spoken in tongues. No, that's a, a unique story, right? Do we need to see the laying on of hands in order to impart the spirit? That's a question. Then let's go to Acts chapter 10, verse 46. So Acts 10, 46. As Peter evangelizes the Gentile household of Cornelius, his household hears the gospel, they receive the Spirit without the laying on of hands, and they immediately begin to speak in tongues. So notice the order is different here, but now you have not only crossed into like half Jewish territory, you're into Gentile territory preaching the gospel... And they receive the Spirit of God while, while Peter is preaching and begin to praise God in tongues. And then the last instance, which is the most unusual. If you would think those were, are unique, get ready for this one. In Acts chapter 19 verse 6, there is a group of disciples who received John the Baptist baptism. So they were baptized by John or something similar to John. But they had never received the Holy Spirit. They had put their faith in the coming Christ, but as Paul investigates, it's clear they didn't know about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They, were, they had only been discipled up until John the Baptist. So, what does Paul do? He preaches the gospel to them. He shares the full story of Jesus. They're then baptized not in John the Baptist baptism, but it says they're baptized in the name of the Lord. And then the Apostle Paul lays his hands on him, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. All right? What an interesting three instances of Scripture. Now, this is what's so important. Even in Acts chapter 2, after Peter stands up and gives this amazing sermon, 3,000 people receive the gospel and are baptized and added to the church that day. But there is no reference to them speaking in tongues. Not interesting. It's deadly silence. So these are the only situations in the New Testament, the three that I've just listed to you, where speaking in tongues seems to be, seems one of the purposes of speaking in tongues is to give either an apostle or the people themselves evidence that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So should we infer from these instances, Pentecost and the three references that I give you, That all of us should speak in tongues to evidence salvation today. And I would say no. That these instances are exceptional. They are not normative nor universal. Okay? The Holy Spirit here. Here's what I sincerely believe the Holy Spirit is doing. He is establishing continuity with Samaritans. Okay? Gentiles. And then people who I kind of say this are straddling the covenant. All right? They've got one foot in the Old Testament, they heard that there's Jesus, there's a coming Messiah, but hasn't heard the whole story. And what happens is the Holy Spirit here is manifesting himself in such a way that those who truly know Jesus, who are a part of the church, has to look at the Samaritans, Gentiles, and now people who've transferred out of the Old Covenant and say this, they are a part of the church, just like we are. Because imagine this, if you know your Bible at all, if the Jerusalem Council happened, this is where they decided, should Gentiles obey the Mosaic Law and be circumcised? If they, I sincerely believe this, if they had never had an experience of speaking in tongues, they would have probably been considered inferior or second-class Christians. And what what does Peter argue at the Jerusalem Council? In fact, he says this, they spoke in tongues just like we did. And that should show you the continuity of the experience itself. What happened at Pentecost happened in Cornelius' home. And so they're saying, the Gentiles are just as much in on the church and have received the Holy Spirit just like we are. So these are exceptions, not the rule. Now, if, in case you want to say, is this just an inference... I believe the Scripture is absolutely clear that all people don't speak in tongues. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 29 through 30. And this should appear before you in your notes and on the screen. Paul is making a rhetorical question. And the answer of these, of course, are in the no. And we've kind of practiced this before. You can answer out. Are all apostles, are all Christians apostles? I can wait on you, church. No. All right. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Because if you are, I can find something for you to do, all right? Uh, Do all do miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. And yet, ironically, we have people on that one go, yeah. No. Okay? So, no, not everyone speaks in tongues. And here's, you say, Josh, why do you go through all of that? just to tell us that not everyone speaks in tongues. Because here's what I do think happens. I think this can be a form, and please hear me out because I say it with grace, not every person who believes or speaks in tongues says this, but there's some where it, in order to, to, for them to believe you're a genuine believer, you have to evidence it by speaking in tongues. And I actually think this is, can be a form of legalism because it burdens people with something to do that the Holy Spirit has not enabled them to do. Okay? They sit under the weight of going, I've got to have this. And yet the Holy Spirit, the, I think the Scripture occurred going, you don't have to have this. Alright? So that's why I share that with you in hopes of relieving the burden of anybody ever putting this on you saying, you have to do this. And you can look at them going, no, I don't. Alright? Now, here, let's, let's do it to another, another sub-question. So should any believer speak in tongues today? That's the question. So we talked about do all, no, but do any, is it even viable today? Now in this debate, I'm about to get intensely theological with you, so follow along with me. This debate is divided between two camps and there's spectrums along each camp, okay? So I'm about to characterize in a way just so that we can talk, uh, but I'm not representing both sides to their fullest extent. But there's two groups, and it's called cessationism and continuationism. Now, I'll explain what those are real simply. Cessationists believe that the sign gifts, like tongues, have ceased. They no longer are able to be done today. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. okay? And the proof text for this, and hear it out, is Hebrews 2:4 and I think this should appear for you as well. Hebrews 2:4 says this, at the same time God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Now what that proof text, what they use that text to say and I, and I, and I believe they're saying it, but it's not everything is this Is since the apostolic witness of the gospel has been laid down. It's been it's been given, delivered once and for all to the saints. And God, the way he established that gospel proclaimed by the apostles, he testified or witnessed alongside of them by having the apostles perform these incredible signs and wonders. And so the the inference goes like this: Since the gospel has been laid down, we're not gonna add to the gospel. There is therefore no need to testify to the apostolic witness. There's no need for signs and wonders. So they say it's ceased. The only issue I have with it is I find it ironic that you can't actually turn to a text and say they have ceased. Okay? Which is always the weird part. It's like the, the apostolic witness is done and yet they make an inference that says and tongues have ceased. Uh, what I think is better to do, and, and this is in my opinion, all right, these are second-tier issues. You're going to have people who disagree on this in the body of Christ, and they're still genuine believers, all right, is I consider myself a very cautious and careful continuationist. I mean, probably to the extreme. I straddle that line, all right, and here's what that means. I do believe that these sign gifts are for today. They can happen, but they, I need you to see how they scripturally happen. This is what's so important. So I'm going to give you three things that as a continuationist, as someone who says, yeah, I think it's possible that this this happens. Three things that you need to know if, this, if, if tongues is going to happen. Number one is this, and you can write this down. Seek not tongues as evidence for salvation. Okay? Seek not. All right? Some people, again, I do not want you to be loaded down with this heavy burden. If you want to know if you're saved or not, let me give you a better text, okay, than, than this false theology, because that's what that is. Is Galatians five, twenty two through twenty-three. You ready? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Those are the evidence of the fruit of, of the work of the Spirit in your life. So you don't have to look to a sign or wonder or whether you're a teacher or whether you serve in some other capacity. Those aren't it. Now, you should have a spiritual gift. And we'll discuss that later on this year. But every Christian is called to exhibit those things. We can say that unequivocally. Okay? So I would evaluate your spiritual life and your connection to Jesus based on Galatians five twenty two through 23 And if these things are not growing in your life, then no, you're not a believer. I make it that clear. Now, number two, and here's where I think the text is explicit, and why I'm a careful, cautious continuation. Number two, forbid not tongues as a spiritual gift. Forbid not tongues as a spiritual gift. And here's the text. So 1 Corinthians 14 is your go to spot. Alright? But 1 Corinthians 14 1 says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. And I think prophecy is a form of a uh, foretelling, uh, not just a uh, uh, gift of understanding the future. Alright? So it's probably much like the proclamation of the message of God. But then notice what it says at the very end. That's the first verse in 1 Corinthians 14. Then at the very end is 1 Corinthians 14.39. Listen to this. So then my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So that's explicit in the text. It's not inference. Don't forbid it. Okay? And so biblically, this is where my conscience is held. I cannot sit here and look, at a, and look at you, although I am very sympathetic with the cessationist arguments and say it's forbidden because the text goes, don't forbid it. All right? So I don't forbid it. But here's what we have to take into consideration is this third one. Because this is where the, and with generous and respect, and I have many good Christian friends and family who are part of it, where the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, some have gone off the rails, and it comes to this one here. Number three, silence uninterpreted tongues. Silence uninterpreted tongues. This is probably my biggest issue with the whole continuationist. First Corinthians 14, 27 and 28. So Paul tells us, okay, let's say tongues is happening, right? If anyone speaks in a tongue, there is to be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. This is not madness. And I would tell any pastor who is encouraging his church to all speak in tongues at one time is violating Scripture. That's what they're doing. They're creating chaos and confusion, which is not to be a part of the gathering of the believed. Notice the next verse. But if there is no interpreter, notice what happens. The person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself in God. Okay? Right there with gentleness and respect, those two verses alone cut out half of what we see going on in most of these churches today. can't happen. Okay? So between those three, that's where I'm at. I don't think you should look at tongues as an evidence for salvation You look for the fruit of the Spirit. I cannot, in good conscience, biblically, forbid tongues. I have never spoken in tongues. All right? But then the third thing is this, is if tongues happens, it's to be done that way. That's the way. Okay? So notice, it's not like something happens where the Holy Spirit possesses somebody and they're completely out of control. That's not what happens. Okay? They are in control. They can keep silent if they choose to be. Isn't that interesting? Now, what is tongues? That's the other question. So now we know not all believers are supposed to do it. Technically, biblically, I think some may. Some may. But they need to follow these guidelines. But what is it that they're actually doing? Okay? Some assume, and I do as well that all the instances of speaking in tongues is identical to what happened at Pentecost. Now here's why this is important, and i had you underline those languages. So the first two, the first two times in in Acts chapter 2 where it says language, it's the word dialectos. The gift of speaking in tongues is that last one that's that's, uh, referenced as tongues. But what I find so amazing here is that here the audience is referring to the same event they, they note the miracle, but what do they just say? That the miracle was speaking in their dialects. Okay? In their dialects. So I do believe tongues is some type of known language. Now I'll explain that. Now there are others who will contend that it includes some type of heavenly or angelic language. And the proof text that they get that from is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Now, I'm going to read it to you because I think if you read it, if you read the whole text, you realize Paul is using rhetoric and hyperbole. All right, look at what he says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So you can write this down, all right? Tongues without love is gibberish. All right? Tongues without love is gibberish. But keep looking, it says this. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, again, answer the question. Is Paul saying he has the understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge? No, he's, he's exaggerating it on purpose. Going, if I, had, if I had insight into everything. And then notice what he says. And, and if I have all faith so that mountains, so that I can move mountains. Now, has Paul ever moved a literal mountain? No, this is, he speaking figuratively, metaphorically, right? But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions. Now, Paul was very charitable, but we know he had things, okay? If I give over my body in order to, uh, to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So what he's trying to say, just using rhetoric, he's saying, if I did all these amazing things, he's saying, if I could speak in the tongues of angels, He's not actually saying there is a tongue. Does that get what I'm saying? Just like he's saying, I didn't actually move a mountain. I'm saying if it was possible to do all these things, but if I don't love, I don't have anything. All right, so I don't understand. Uh, I think it's a bad reading of the text to say that this is angelic languages. And that's the proof. That's the only text, by the way, that you're looking at. I'm giving you everything. And then others contend, that it is some verbal expression that requires interpretation. So, and, and, and I'm not saying this in a degrading way, but that in effect, the speaker is uh, babbling, okay? It's not a coherent, intelligible language or known language, but it's something that can be transmitted or trans, you know, translated into a known language. And the text that, that's given to this generally, and there's other texts, but... First Corinthians 14:23 says if therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or believers come in will they not say that you are out of your minds now here's what they infer from that okay is that okay it's clearly not intelligible because people outsiders unbelievers should come in and look at a church and go they are out of their minds when this happens but another reason, I think they don't read the text well. Listen to what it says. If the whole assembly gathers, so the whole church, we're not phasing in, but all of us are back together, and all are speaking in tongues, so what should we first raise our hands to? What did he just tell us a minute ago? All don't. So he is again saying, this is a hypothetical scenario. Let's just imagine for a minute, the whole church gathered, and everybody was speaking in tongues. Right? He says, surely, even if everybody's speaking in a dialect, that everybody, like, it's a known language, but everybody's doing it at one time, what would an unbeliever do? I'm going to go find a different church. Right? So this is not madness in the sense that it's incoherent babbling. He's talking about the scene of going, nothing's intelligible because you have a cacophony of languages being spoken at, at all the same time. It has more to do with order than it has to do with explaining what tongues is. Okay? So, does tongues look and sound like drunken madness? This is another one. And back to, to Acts chapter 2. What did, the, what did the, the, those who mocked the apostles, what did they say? They're drunk on new wine. And again, somehow people infer, well, it must look like drunkenness. This is coming out of the mouth of Jesus and the apostles' enemies. Why are you going to take their theology? I do not understand that. I like what Desiderius Erasmus says. Of course, extreme intoxication is very much like madness. But no madness enables all to understand what you say. You see that? What does drunkenness do? It impairs motor skills. It slurs speech. They are the, 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 the jokesters are being mean. Oh, they're drunk and they're getting lucky. Because there's no way Galileans can speak that well. And what? They were clearly not going to say they're filled with the Spirit of God. Right? They have to look for a natural, not a supernatural explanation. And they know the Galileans aren't this smart, and there's no way God can actually be moving through them. So what do they say? They come up with something crazy. That's drunkenness. Y'all, and let me tell you, the reason I believe this more and more, because when you try to see rational people try to explain away supernatural things, it gets silly real quick. Right? We got people believing that Jesus wasn't really raised, he had a twin brother. This is insanity. All right? So, does it sound like madness or drunkenness? No, not at all. In fact, the only time the two are associated in Scripture is when it's associated in contrast. Ephesians 5 18 says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but notice the contrast, but be filled with the Spirit. I think what we can easily infer from that, especially taking Galatians chapter 5 into context, is what? When you're filled with the Spirit, you are filled with self-control. Not the loss of control. So when you go on television or YouTube and you see people losing control in the name of the Spirit, it's fake. It's fake. They've either been deceived or they're deceiving you. Cyril of Jerusalem paraphrased Peter's response this way, yes, the disciples are drunken with a sober drunkenness, deadly to sin, and life giving to the heart, a drunkenness contrary to that of the body, and listen to how Cyril puts it, for the last causes forgetfulness even of what is known. He says, physical drunkenness makes you forget what you said, right? He says, but the other one, being filled with the Spirit, bestows the knowledge even of what was not known. You see the difference? He says, but when you're filled with the Spirit, He says, he gave them the ability to do something they didn't even know how to do. It's the complete opposite. It was the most controlled they'd ever been in their life. <laughs> it was the most knowledgeable they had ever been in their life. It wasn't madness or chaos. Now we come full circle. We know. Do all believers speak in tongues? No. Is it possible today? I think it is possible, but it's got to be done scripturally. And then does it look like drunken madness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So what does that teach us? What is this text supposed to teach us about the Holy Spirit? And you can write this down. The Holy Spirit does not drive us to madness. That's not what he's here to do. The Holy Spirit does not drive us to madness, but to missions. That's what this text is about. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel needs to be put in everyone's language. Every person needs to hear the gospel in their own words. And all of Christendom should be able to go, Amen. That's what we all agree on. It's clear the Holy Spirit is missional. I like what Henry Martin said. The nearer we get to Him, the Holy Spirit, the more intensely missionary we must become. We don't get crazier. We get more missional. The the gospel's on our lips. Alright? The Holy Spirit desires to speak to every person in his or her own language and give the saving message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's the part why I believe it is still a possibility. I believe someone can still speak in tongues for their benefit for their personal benefit, but it's to be kept silent in love if someone else cannot understand it. But here's the wonderful thing. Can I absolutely imagine a scenario in which someone is sharing the gospel to someone in a, in a foreign language and the Holy Spirit helps them do that? Absolutely. That's what I cannot forbid. I cannot forbid that. The Holy Spirit desires to reach people. Here's what, the, here's what I believe the text is teaching us. The Holy Spirit desires to reach the people you may be uncomfortable reaching. Isn't that amazing? You go, mm, I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't say that. You're right, but the Holy Spirit can. That's the point. It doesn't matter if that person is near to God or far from God. Right, I love the, even the physical representation. You've got people all the way from Rome. And the Holy Spirit so I'm after them too. I'm after them too. It doesn't matter if they look, think, speak, or act differently than you. Holy Spirit doesn't care. What does He do? He transcends cultures. I want you to go over there. I want you to lay your hands on them. Hey, those Samaritans you despised, what are they now? They're brothers. Hug them. Those Gentiles you wouldn't even go into a household with? Oh, what'd I do? I didn't even let them speak in tongues So you got inside the house and preached to them. See what I'm saying? You're going to have to love on them. They're part of the church. It doesn't matter if you feel qualified or not. I love this. You say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. That's the beautiful thing. You study the word, you know the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. You just be faithful to him. Be faithful to him. The wonderful promise of the Holy Spirit is that he is with us. Right? And he wants the gospel in every person's ears. And he will do whatever it takes. Right? That's what's so amazing. And he changes our nature. And I don't put anything past him to reach anybody. The Holy Spirit empowers us to reach people we could never reach. That's what Acts 2 is about. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. You say, well, what do you want us to do? (laughs) I do want you to know this. Is that. The Holy Spirit only relates to believers. That is clear. I'm not asking you to speak in tongues today as evidence of your salvation. I've shared that. I don't believe that's what's happening. Okay? But what I do believe, what I do believe, is the Holy Spirit does want to relate to every person. Every person here. And the only way we can have a relationship with the Holy Spirit is through repentance of our sin and And hold trust in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit is poured out. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whether you're here physically with us or you're watching online. I want to teach you to pray. To confess your sin and to commit your life to Christ. And the moment you believe and you receive the gospel, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and relate to you. And begin to change you. He will He'll produce that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He'll do all those things. Alright? So if you want to turn from your sins and trust Christ as your Savior and receive the Spirit, ask Jesus now. Pray this silently in your heart. He's not dead. He's alive. He's God. He hears our thoughts and whispers. Just pray. Say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and deserve hell. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. And you shed your blood and died on the cross for all my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Send your Holy Spirit into my life. Be my Savior in God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you about your relationship with Christ in the next step. The way we go public with that private confession and commitment is through baptism, water baptism. Where we identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. By When we go under the water, we say we are dead to sin in Christ. And when we come up out of the water, we are saying we are alive with Christ and His resurrection to the newness of life. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to fill out that tear-off panel, drop it in the offering boxes on your way out. Or or you can text that BELIEVE to our number or visit mtcarmeldinvers.com forward slash baptism. Fill out that form. They're sent to me. You're not signing up. You're just giving me the opportunity to talk to you more about it. The thing that I want to encourage believers with today, and I wrote this little prayer out, and I would encourage you when we have this time of of, of meditation all right, to reflect on the scriptures As this is what I wrote Father fill us with the Holy Spirit to reach other cultures around us even when we feel uncomfortable empower and embolden us to proclaim the good news of Jesus in love in Jesus name would you make that the prayer of your heart as we Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.